Let's pray. Incline our hearts to your word, O God, and not to getting gain. Open our hearts to see wonderful things out of your word, not boring things. Unite our hearts to fear your name as it's revealed in your word and satisfy us in the evening and in the morning with your steadfast love. Lord, we know that a love for the Bible and the God of the Bible is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Nobody by nature inclines to spiritual things. And therefore, we are about the impossible now in the next minutes, as we always are. Awakening, kindling, a love for Scripture. Seeking to stir up a passion to meditate on and memorize the Bible and live it for the glory of Christ. So would you come and help me now and help all of us so that the impossible would happen for your great namesake. Through Christ I pray, amen. Well, here we are at the end of prayer week. And as always, we unite in prayer week prayer and the Word, a focus on prayer and a focus on the Word. There's a reason for that. In fact, there are five reasons, and I'll give them to you. One, much of the Bible is prayer, like the Psalms, almost all prayer. Two, the Bible is full of commands and exhortations and encouragements to pray, like pray without ceasing. Three, we are told to pray according to the will of God, and the Bible is the revealed will of God. Four, the Word of God cannot be truly desired. It cannot be spiritually comprehended, and it cannot be savingly spoken without the power of the Holy Spirit, which we ask for in prayer. And therefore, the word and prayer must go together. Number five, we are told in the Scriptures that being saturated with the word will yield a fruitful prayer life. John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask what you wish and it will be done for you. Couldn't be clearer. A Bible-saturated life will be a fruitful life of prayer. You try to avoid the Bible or neglect the Bible, prayer will die in your life. They must go together. So, we begin our week, Sermon on Prayer, end our week, Sermon on the Word, because of the way the Bible conceives the connection between the two. Now, there's a unique thing this year about 
the way we begin the year. It has all to do with introducing a new Bible translation to you and encouraging you to switch. No apologies. On June 3rd of this year, the Council of Elders voted unanimously at my request to make the preaching Bible, the pew Bible, which you see in front of you or under you, and the memorizing Bible of this church, the English Standard Version, which was published two years ago by Crossway Books. Now, I'll read it to you. This is the motion that was acted on. That we make the English Standard Version of the Preaching Bible of Bethlehem Baptist Church, that we change our pew Bibles to the ESV when the funds are available, and that we create a fighter verse material based on the ESV. Not to the exclusion of the old ones, but new and available. Now that's done, all of it. What remains is to say why would we go this direction? The full rationale, about eight pages of it, is at the website, Both Desiring God, front page, and will be up Monday morning on the website of the church as well. So if you want to read the rest of the story, then you can go there and see that. But I want to give you a flavor of what that rationale was in the first few minutes of this message before we go to the text, and I seek to let the Lord stir you up to love the Word and be in the Word this year. Here's the first paragraph I wrote when I brought this recommendation to the elders earlier this year, last year. I love the Bible the way I love my eyes, not because my eyes are lovely, but because without them I can't see what's lovely. Without the Bible, I could not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Without the Bible, I could not know the unsearchable riches of Christ. Without the Bible, I would not know that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. I love the Bible because it gives the wisdom that leads to salvation and shows me that this salvation is nothing less than seeing and savoring the glory of Christ forever. And then provides for me inexhaustible ways of seeing and knowing and enjoying Christ. We in America, actually we in the English-speaking world, should be in continual thanksgiving to God that the Bible for 500-plus years has been in our language. Thousands of people groups cannot yet say that. And I praise God for every one of you engaged in supporting and translating the Bible. Oh, how precious is the English Bible for those of us who speak English. And let me say very clearly, I'm going to repeat this so that you don't carry the wrong feeling away from this message. I would rather you read any translation of the Bible, no matter how weak, than to have you read none. If there could be only one translation in English, I would rather it be the one I dislike most than that there be none. 
You feel the flavor of that now? Don't hear my preference for the ESV as a kind of nitpicky downputting of something precious in your life. We have faced a problem, however, I think for the last 30 years. The New International Version has become the most popular modern evangelical Bible translation. And the problem is that the NIV, which many of you use, is very much of a paraphrase rather than a more literal translation. When I first read it in 1975 as a teacher over at Bethel, I read it straight through. Many of my friends, who were my colleagues at the college at that time, had worked on it. They still are my friends. I knew immediately I can never preach from this Bible. I will never teach from this Bible. It is simply too loose. I don't say it's wrong, please. I say it simply does for the reader what the reader ought to do for themselves. In other words, when there's an ambiguity in the original language and good English will preserve it, it ought to be preserved rather than having a translator make the decision for you what the ambiguity probably means. I'm a deeply convinced person when it comes to what translation should be and what commentary should be. Preaching exists to interpret the Bible. Translation does not exist to interpret the Bible. Therefore, where it doesn't have to, and I admit it must, it must in many places because English doesn't have many constructions that are in Greek and Hebrew, and you must as a translator do interpretation. But where you don't have to, you shouldn't. Now, that's my conviction. It is not shared by everyone in the translation business. We were faced, therefore, with either the NIV with its readability but non-literal approach, or you had a few other options. King James has always been available. The New American Standard Bible was sort of the default modern translation for those who wanted something more literal. We are no longer forced into a choice between readability, paraphrasing, or non-readability, literal. We now have a version that I think presents a much more balanced approach to literal would be at the way in, word for word literal, which is impossible, totally, and a, a very rich paraphrase. The message, for example. I'm not against the message, if you know what I'm talking about, the, the paraphrase that's out there. It just came out because the whole Bible's finished. I think that's a wonderful way to supplement careful study of the Bible. Let's just not call it a translation, and let's not make it the standard reading, translating, memorizing Bible. I'm not against I grew up where the Phillips paraphrase was really powerful. Are you running with me? Jesus was another one. I love those. I never entered my mind that they were translations. But today, paraphrases tend to be called translations because of certain dynamic equivalence philosophies of translation that have failed to make distinctions that I think are very, very important. Now, let me say a word about the ESV and why I would be delighted if this church 
freely and without coercion, moved toward the embrace of it. And I say that not jokingly because we're not going to twist anybody's arm to do this. We're not going to make you switch. But here is um, an initial reason for my enthusiasm for the ESV. Then I'll give you some concrete reasons. Uh, the ESV is in the lineage of the King James Version, which has something really beneficial going for it. Let me explain what I mean by lineage. The King James Version of the Bible was translated in 1611. For 500 years almost, it has had a profound impact on our culture and on our language. Its cadences are familiar. You hear them even when you don't know you're hearing them. Tinkling brass and sounding cymbal and those kinds of things. In 1880 in England, a revision was made for the British readers, and in 1901, the uh, revision of the King James was made for Americans. It was called the American Standard Version, 1901. It lasted for 50 years, never replacing the King James, but being there as an alternative. In 1952, the Revised Standard Version replaced that and became a common version. It's the version I bought, 1966, as a sophomore in college, knowing I could no longer survive on the King James Version that I grew up on. And therefore, I've been memorizing in the Revised Standard Version for 30 years. You may ask why I should be enthusiastic about the ESV, and I'll tell you in a minute. The RSV had its problems. It had a liberal bent towards certain theological positions that I don't hold, and, and it was kind of freewheeling in its speculation about certain psalms, and so it wasn't an ideal version. Most evangelicals rejected it and considered it a liberal Bible, though it was a very good translation if you could bracket the few problems that it had. It was replaced. It went out of print in the mid-'80s and was replaced in 1989 by the New Revised Standard Version. The evangelical church checked that out, and by and large, it flopped. It's very prevalent in the more mainline churches. In fact, it would be the main Bible if you went to any of the mainline Protestant churches. But the problem with the New Revised Standard Version is that the gender issue became so powerful that it virtually changed everything. And the evangelical church, even those who don't share my more conservative complementarian views, knew this will never become the standard Bible of the evangelical church, and it hasn't. Two years ago, the uh, Crossway Books publishers negotiated with the owners of the copyright of the Revised Standard Version to buy it in order to do a light revision. What you have in the pew there in front of you, in the ESV, is a very lightly revised RSV. Theologically, it's cleaned up. And as far as speculative things in the Old Testament, it's cleaned up. The these and thous are gone. And if there's been any fresh discoveries that have helped us discern a better meaning for a word, they've been used. But by and large, I would say, I'm not sure, they could tell me exactly, 90% of this is RSV. 
And you can see why now I relax because all my memorization hardly ever has to make any corrections when I read this Bible. And therefore, when you, when you read the ESV, you will hear King James. You will. If you grew up on the King James, you will find it resonating through that lineage from 1611 to 1901 to 1952 to 2001. And that's a good thing when some of the beauty and the cadences and the wording of the King James through all those revisions can be preserved. So let me say again, um, the main reason is that between literalness over here, word-for-word literalness, and uh, paraphrasing over here where translators make choices for the reader that they ought to make for themselves with good English, the ESV is, is like right in here. It's much more liberal than the, than the uh, NIV and more readable than the NASB, which is what I preached from for 20 years in this pulpit because I would opt for literal over paraphrasing if I must. Now, let me give you some concrete examples of why I consider it superior to the NIV. I'll just give you bullets of texts, and you, you will see the flavor of what I mean. For example, Romans 1.5, the phrase, obedience of faith would be the ESV. I'm going to give you the ESV, then the NIV. The ESV literal, the obedience of faith. It's ambiguous. Therefore, the NIV translates it, the obedience that comes from faith. Maybe and maybe not. There are other possible meanings for the obedience of faith. Second, Romans 3.20, from works of the law, literal translation, NIV, by observing the law. Maybe, maybe not. Works of the law may have a very more rigorous technical meaning than simply observing the law. It may be a very negative and pejorative meaning. Third, Romans 13.8, owe no one anything, literal. Very offensive in our day because we all have mortgages. So, softening it, the NIV Let no debt remain outstanding. That's too easy. We ought to be able to wrestle with the original wording. Oh, no one anything. George Mueller took it literally and never had a debt in his life. Hebrews 6.1, dead works, literal. NIV, acts that lead to death. Maybe, I doubt it. There's probably something more dead about these works than just that they lead to death. James 2.12, the law of liberty, literal. NIV, the law that gives freedom. Maybe, maybe not. These are all interpretations of an ambiguity because the, the philosophy driving it is clarity. Don't leave the reader with the question in their mind, to which I say, that is wrong. You should leave a a reader with a question where the original leaves the reader with a question. We must think about these things. What does law of liberty mean? Don't tell me what it means. You can bring into perfect idiomatic English the ambiguity of the original. Do so. 
There's nothing bad about the English law of liberty. One more. And this one I mentioned because it was so relevant when I preached through Romans 8 and I was deeply burdened that I couldn't make my point from the NIV. There are other places where that happened. You come through Romans 8. See if you remember this sermon. I doubt it. Romans 8, it's 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And I raise the question, will sword separate you from the love of Christ? Of course, the answer is no, but why is the answer no? And of course, a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel may say the answer is no because it never comes near you. It doesn't chop your head off if you have enough faith. You escape if you're walking with Jesus. That's why it can't separate you from the love of Christ. And of course, the next verse rules that out if you translate it right. The next verse says, quoting Psalm 44, 22, we, as it is written, we are being killed all day long. And I argued because of that, verse 35 meant the sword cannot separate you from the love of Jesus even if it chops off your head. And the NIV translates that, we face death all day long. Do you ever experience it? Well, maybe not. That is a weak and inadequate translation attempting to be a paraphrase because it was just a, I don't know the motive, I don't know. But the radical, we are being killed all day long, is gone. I must be careful not to get too worked up at this because those folks still are my friends and some of you are going to choose to stay with the NIV, and I told you we wouldn't coerce you, and I'm starting to sound like I am. So forgive me, but I do, uh, I do get frustrated with paraphrases. Okay, that's enough argument. Let's go to the text. Um, I hope that you'll buy an ESV, at least read it this year. And if you decide, nope, that's not the one that will help me most... That's fine. It's your choice, and I'm glad nobody ever coerced me to stay with the King James Version, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't coerce you to find God in any particular version. He can be found in any. He really can. Thank His grace. The text is 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 4, and all I want to do here in the remaining time is not focus on everything in this text, but go to one main thing. I'll tell you what I'm not going to talk about <laughs> that I'd like to talk about. Number one, I'm not going to talk about the enormous importance of preaching the Word. I'd love to preach on that phrase, preach the Word, and argue for my job. But I won't. I won't do it this time. Or I would love to talk about the seriousness of preaching the Word to please the itching ears of unspiritual people. In verses 3 and 4 of chapter 4, itching ears. Oh, we don't like that preacher. Let's fire him. Get one that tells us what we want to hear. The danger in the churches of preachers preaching to be liked 
or to tell people what they want to hear about their lifestyles. I could talk a long, sweet time about the wonderful God-breathed nature of Scripture, chapter 3, verse 16. But those three things I'm not going to talk about. I'm going to talk about this little phrase, equipped for every good work. Let's read verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Profitable, don't miss that. It's profitable, all of it's profitable. Read the whole thing straight through, not just your hobby horses, not just your favorite paragraphs. Read it all, it's all profitable. Verse 17 that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, that's a remarkable phrase. Every good work. Everything good that God expects us to do, the Bible equips us to do. Isn't that incredible? That's what it says. It's profitable. The Scripture is profitable that the man of God may be uh, competent, equipped for every good work. That must mean the ones he wants you to do, not the ones he wants me to do, because we're not called to do exactly the same things. Everything God calls you to do, expects you to do, the Bible equips you to do. And I want to know how. Let me tell you two ways it doesn't happen, or one way it doesn't happen, and two reasons why it's a mistake to think it is. It does not mean the Bible is such a big book, even though you can make it small like this. This is one of these wonderful little ESVs. (laughs) This is the the dagger version ESV. (laughs) And I've got a button here that keeps it from going in. There we go. That's the dagger version, and I commend it to all women's purses and all men's pocketbooks. I mean pockets whatever men carry these days. Now, I lost my place. Where am I? Every good work. Oh, what it does not mean. I mean, how it does not happen. The Bible does not equip us for every good work by being thick enough and detailed enough to prescribe choices for every situation you get in. That would be a mistake to think that way for two reasons. One, uh, there was no cloning in Jesus' day. There were no birth control pills in Jesus' day. There was no Prozac in Jesus' day. There were no computers or internet pornography in Jesus' day. There were, there were a hundred, a thousand things we face the Bible has no lists on. Do this, not that. Buy this one, not that one. Go this place, not that place. Handle your genetic engineering this way, not that way. The Bible simply doesn't have lists. Therefore, if you think it equips us to do everything good by telling us which fork in the road to go with a a sentence or a verse, you won't find it. That's one reason that would be a mistake. Here's the more significant reason it would be a mistake to think that way about the way the Bible 
equips us to do every good work. Thinking that way leads straight to legalism. That there are enough lists in this Bible, there are enough do's and don'ts in this Bible to help us uh, see the choice right there in the text. That leads straight to legalism. That is, it leads straight to thinking of your behavior as something that should conform externally to this list over here. You just kind of consult the list, and then you, you just will the right behavior. That is not Christian morality. That's externalism. That's legalism. Having a list and then a behavior and just making the two match. That is not Christianity. Christianity is being so changed inside by the Spirit through the Word that you want different things and you hate different things and you can intuit and smell the God-exalting, human-loving way to act, even when there's nothing written explicitly about it. Let me give you a couple of verses that make me believe that. Romans 14, 23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Any behavior on any list in or outside the Bible is sin if it's not done from faith. Therefore, in order to do right, something's got to change in here, not just conform out here. Here's another verse. This one's even more penetrating, I think. Romans 7, 4. My brothers, you also have died to the law. Wow. Just think of that. You died to the law. He did to the law in order that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Every phrase is packed in that verse. Dead to the law all of its lists, all of its beckoning to external conformity, if we're not careful, and you die to it, that's not the way I'm going to live anymore. And you don't throw it off for lawlessness. You throw it off for Christ, that we may belong to another, to him who's raised from the dead, the risen living Christ. I now belong to him. He's mine. I'm his effect that we may, and then he uses this phrase that is so different from list-keeping, bear fruit for God. Why that kind of phrase? It's because fruit doesn't work to go onto that limb at all. It just courses up in the sap of grace and power and love and wisdom and beauty and visions of Christ and then grows naturally on the limb. That's what a good tree does is bear good fruit. 
I want to be like that. That's Christianity. So here's my answer to how the Bible equips us for every good work. Day after day, with little um, booster shots on Sunday, the Bible reveals to us the greatness, the beauty, the power, the wisdom, the mercy of all that God is for us in Jesus. And that revelation, the Holy Spirit uses. He lifts the veil, which leaves us bored, bored, bored. And then he lifts the veil, and on our faces we go with beauty and wonder and worship because we've suddenly seen the Christ in the Word. We've seen God. We've seen his perfections and his beauties. And by the Spirit, all that revelation goes into us and makes us into people who have different joy and different love and different hate and different disapprovals. We get all shook up inside so different than before the Word came. It equips us for every good work because it's the vehicle by which the Holy Spirit makes us new. And by new, I simply mean you got new moral taste buds. You taste pornography, and you get sick. You get nauseated. You might battle it. You might have it, but then you get sick. I hate this stuff. Why do I do that? Or you might lick greed and covetousness and fall for a moment, and then you get sick and just, blah. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Or you come up to the Word of God and you take a taste and you say, sweet, sweet, sweet. Whereas before it was bitter and sour and you didn't want anything to do with it, just wanted television and sports and music and leisure. And, and now you can actually spend a half an hour meditating on the Word of God because you see Jesus there. It's like visiting Jesus. So I'm going to close like this. I've been, I've been reading hundreds and hundreds of pages of George Mueller. George Mueller lived over 100 years ago in England, Bristol, and he is known for founding orphanages in which he cared for thousands of orphans in his 40-plus years of orphanage work. And he's also known for praying with such remarkable faith that the Orphans were never without what they needed, even though he didn't explicitly ask others to help. They just helped because he prayed. And he, on a New Year's Day, like this one, sort of, um, preached a sermon 120 years ago. When he was age 59, I'll be 58 in a week, about the place of the Word of God. And it is exactly what I want to say. Only I think letting it be said from 100 years ago and by a person who was a better man than I am and prayed better prayers than I'll ever pray and saw more people come to Christ than I'll ever see and blessed orphans more than I'll ever bless orphans, I thought maybe, maybe in the mouth of George Mueller you might be encouraged to do what he says. So I read it and then we'll close. 
We have, through the goodness of the Lord, been permitted to enter upon another year, and the minds of many among us will no doubt be occupied with plans for the future and the various fears of our work and service for the Lord. If our lives are spread, if our lives are spared, we shall be engaged in those, the welfare of our families, the prosperity of our business, our work and service for Christ may be considered the most important matters we will attend to. But according to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may even have urgent claims upon your attention. But I deliberately repeat, it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. Day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life. This has been my firm and settled conviction for the last five and thirty years. For the first four years of my conversion, I knew not its vast importance. But now, after much experience, I especially commend this point to the notice of my younger brethren and sisters in Christ. The secret of all true effective service is joy in God. Having experimental acquaintance and fellowship with God Himself. But in what way shall we attain to this settled happiness of soul? How shall we learn to enjoy God? How obtain such an all-sufficient, soul-satisfying portion in Him as shall enable us to go as to enable us to let go the things of this world as vain and worthless in comparison? I answer, this happiness is to be obtained through the study of the Holy Scriptures. God has therein revealed himself unto us in the face of Jesus Christ. In the Scriptures, by the power of the Holy Ghost, he makes himself known unto our souls. Therefore, let the earliest portion of the day that we can command be devoted to the meditation on the Scriptures. Our souls should feed upon the Word. This intimate experimental acquaintance with him will make us truly happy. Nothing else will. In God our Father, and the blessed Jesus, our souls have a rich, divine, imperishable, eternal treasure. Let us enter into the practical possession of these true riches. Yea, let the remaining days of our earthly pilgrimage be spent in an ever-increasing, devoted, earnest consecration of our souls to God. To which I say, an unqualified amen. 
May in 2004 at Bethlehem, we devote ourselves to reading, meditating on, memorizing, exulting in the Scriptures. And may through that, Christ himself stand forth in our spirit's eyes and be beautiful and all-consuming to us so that thirdly, our desires and longings and hopes and dreams and tastes are changed and he becomes our joy and taste for sin vanishes. And fourth, may we therefore live lives of love and risk-taking and counter-cultural, counter-intuitive, radical, sacrificial lives of service to Jesus. That's what it's all about, making Christ known through the transformation that comes from the delights in God that come from reading about him in his word. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, and we're going to end the service like this. I want to be quiet for one minute while you ask the Lord concerning your own habits this year what he is calling you to do. Is there a place you could set aside? Is there a time you could set aside? Is there a way of reading the Bible you could hit upon? Just ask him to impress upon you whatever is true and helpful in what I've said, and we'll close after this one minute of silence.